this is the Connor Shepard Podcast. We are live, and today I'm excited to be joined by Caribou. Appreciate you taking some time to come on today. Thanks for the invite, Connor. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so to start, I'd love to just have you give a little background about yourself. Uh, for anyone who spends time on Bitcoin Twitter, I'm sure they recognize you and the amazing things you did during the, uh, the Freedom Convoy, but just for those unaware, I would love a little more background. Yeah, sure. I'm a Bitcoiner. Uh, right now, I live in Montreal, Canada. And uh, yeah, during the Freedom Convoy, I helped... Uh, get Bitcoin to truckers. So I was uh, living in Ottawa at the time, uh, did what I could to help. And uh, yeah, there was a really cool group of Bitcoiners that came together to uh, put together a pretty significant amount of donations. Actually, the only de the only crowdfunded effort um, where the money actually got to truckers out of all the fiat rails got destroyed or uh, co-opted. And Bitcoin was actually the only crowdfunded um monetary energy that actually got to truckers which i think is pretty cool obviously uh you know there were a lot of variables and circumstances to um sort of consider and it can always be done better but i think as a version one for how to use bitcoin in sort of an adversarial environment i think it did pretty good so um yeah just a standard bitcoiner i uh work at the intersection of bitcoin and health i work for a, um, a health company that's focused on feet to help people get out of fiat shoes and into shoes that don't destroy their feet. And uh, yeah, I spend most of my time uh, trying to improve my own health and then trying to learn as much about Bitcoin and keep up as much as I can in, a, you know, in this sort of fast paced um, world of Bitcoin. So. So, so that's actually really interesting. You said that uh, it's kind of diverges from the topic list a little, but I read the book uh, Born to Run and it just talked about how that not wearing shoes is actually one of the most beneficial things you can do because wearing shoes can hide the pain in your feet and that pain is necessary to tell you hey stop walking like this like this is not good for your knees and that can get mass and then over time it can lead to massive pressure buildups and cause like really serious injuries um and one of the claims it made is actually like sometimes beaten down shoes with the least amount of cushion is arguably the best form of shoes if you're going to wear shoes because the more cushion you have the more it kind of hides that pain uh, so, so I'd love to hear you speak to that and if you agree with that thesis, because after reading that, uh, I definitely have been really wearing down my free runs. I don't want to get a new pair anytime soon if, uh, if that's true. Yeah, I mean, saying that wearing a shoe with arch support prevents injury is like saying using a crutch prevents knee injuries. It's like it doesn't work that way. If you, wear, <laughs> if you use a crutch, you're actually going to weaken your knee to make you more um, susceptible to injury. And I think this, you know, um, there's a crazy stat, that, which is, that 75% of people in shoe wearing cultures will eventually develop foot pain in their lives. Um, and half of those 75% of people have issues so bad that it forces them to modify the activities they're doing. So that's a shitload of people getting their feet destroyed by the very shoes that they're wearing. Uh, and all of the features that companies spend a lot of marketing fiat dollars on to convince you, you need shit in shoes like arch support or cushioning are actually the very things that destroy our ability to move properly and uh, destroy our foot health. So it's really this, um, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, and <laughs> footwear is very similar where unnatural shoes that essentially have this severe consequence on our foot health and our feet are our foundation, right? If your feet can't sense the ground, the rest of your body doesn't know what the fuck's going on because your feet are the sensor that tells them how to move in an efficient way. Um, and you know, I don't know if anyone out there has had foot pain, but when you have really nasty foot pain, it's debilitating. You have your independence stolen away. You it's it's the source of a lot of suffering for a lot of people. So I always tell 
uh, you know, when people ask what I do, I say, I try and give out as many orange pills and green pills as I can. Uh, the orange pill is helping them understand Bitcoin or money mostly, which leads to Bitcoin. And the green pill is helping people understand how to take care of themselves. And I always start with the foundation because um, I think that health disease comes from when we disconnect with nature. I think nature is this decentralized health network, the OG health network that all we got to do is plug into her and health is the result, right? Plugging into nature means eating food that comes from the ground, that comes from good soil, spending time in nature, uh, spending time with others, right? We are nature, spend time with ourselves, with others. And shoes are this like primary point of disconnection from the world around us. And uh, a lot of people suffer a lot with foot problems. So I try and, you know, people are lied to about feet and money. I try and tell people the truth about feet and money. And uh, it's a pretty fun game to play, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know if it's placebo or what, but like I've been spending more time like consciously trying to go and find grass, taking my shoes off and just touching the ground. And it just feels so good. And even if it is placebo, I, I don't care. Like, I, Who fuck cares? At the end of the day, placebo is a superpower. If you can make yourself feel better with no actual quote unquote science or physiological thing, it's like that's called a Jedi trick. It's like that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Amen. So I do want to get into the orange pill, but before we transition, what advice would you have for, I mean, people like myself, I try and ground, I try and avoid shoes. And I remember I had horrible pains, like growing pains and shin splints in middle school wearing Asics. And then I switched to Mizuno's and it kind of helped. Um, but do you recommend like the, the five-toed shoes or like no shoes? I mean, probably shouldn't run no shoes on asphalt, but uh, for, you know, for people who run a lot, what, what advice would you have for them who are, who are thinking about trying to transition away from shoes? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, so I think barefoot is, it's good to go barefoot. I'm not, you know, to say that it's not good to touch the planet would be a silly thing to say. But at the end of the day, I don't really care to convince anyone that the grounding effect is what it is or whatever. It's like, just spend a bit of time without shoes on. You're going to be better for it. But at the end Try of the day, yourself, shoes are a tool. Yourself. Yeah, 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 exactly. Don't trust verify, right? It's like, just go. You're probably going to feel better. Put your feet on some grass. It's like, it's nice. Um, but at the end of the day, shoes are kind of necessary, right? Um, and so the idea is wear a shoe that is what I call natural. So unnatural footwear is shoes that mess your feet up and don't let them function naturally. Natural footwear is are shoes that protect your foot from damage, from cuts, scrapes, puncture, but allow them to function naturally. They allow the muscles to do what they're supposed to and they allow the joints to move like they're supposed to. Most people don't know there's 26 bones and 33 joints in each of our feet. That's a shitload. There's 25% of the joints in our entire body are in our feet. So there's a lot of there's supposed to be a lot of motion there and most shoes if you can't take a shoe and twist it bend it compress it um then it's not going to allow those 33 joints to articulate and move and you're going to have foot problems at some point so one of the companies i work with is called soul freedom s-o-l-e freedom.ca is the website and whether you buy from there or not they serve canada and north america but whether you buy from there or not there's a ton of different brands and styles that are listed there that all go through uh, a filter of basically, is this a natural shoe? Is this piece of footwear going to facilitate a return of natural foot health, strong, dynamic, pain-free, mobile, stable feet? Um, and we don't sell, you know, we don't sell any shoes that don't abide by, by those principles. So, um, you know, there's more and more brands out there. I think, uh, yeah, just 99% of footwear is fiat as fuck and Bitcoin, Bitcoiners understand truth. And I think wearing natural shoes, going out for walks regularly and spending some time with your bare feet on the ground is like a power move when it comes to health um, and many other things. And, you know, if you're an athlete or you play a sport, if you wear natural shoes, you'll unlock a giant amount of athleticism um, 
just by allowing your body to have this advantage in terms of being able to feel the ground. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting how many more people are willing to hear this now this past weekend. Uh, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, the NHL, um, strength and conditioning coaches meet once a year to have, to have meetings, to talk together about league stuff, but also, um, to have talks. And I got invited to talk this year and I talked about shoes and balance training. And, uh, it was funny cause it was kind of like an orange pilling opportunity too. Um, I had 21 <laughs> I slides for 21 minutes. Uh, we did 12 minutes of demo, 21 minutes of training. Like I basically memed, I like implanted the mind virus of <laughs> Bitcoin in their brains. And at the end there was a challenge and whoever won the challenge, I sent them 21 bucks in Bitcoin. Um, and nice. you know, at some point in the presentation, all these strength coaches are sitting in the audience. I'm like, by the way, if you want to talk about Bitcoin or you want to understand money, hit me up. So it's like everywhere I go, I kind of like, you know, sprinkle a little orange pill in some way. It might not, it might be a soft orange pill. Um, it might be a subtle one, but yeah, I think, uh, wearing natural shoes is really just such a upgrade for lower body health. And so if you have low back pain, knee pain, ankle pain, ankle sprains, foot pain, all of those things can be ameliorated by literally just switching to natural footwear. And, um, yeah, so to anyone listening to this, solefreedom.ca, tons of great brands, whether you buy them from another store or not, but those are kind of the brands and styles that I think um, most people need to be aware of because there's more and more of them. They're, they don't look as shitty as they used to. Yes, Vibram toe shoes, those are like the most OG utilitarian kind of shoes, but most people are gonna shy away because of the look. So it doesn't necessarily have to be those. Um, it just has to be something that is um, shaped like your foot, flexible, flat, and has a thin sole. That's it. So, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'm excited to look that up after this podcast because I need a pair like that. Um, yes. And that transition is perfect to, uh, I wanted to ask you how you went down, you know, the rabbit hole and what got you into Bitcoin. And I think, at least from my own experience, I'm sure it's similar for yours. The more time you spend in this and then you actually meet Bitcoiners in real life, you just realize how passionate and excited and enthusiastic and hopeful Bitcoiners are. And when I see that and I see people going out in the world and trying to convince others and telling them, you know, this is a truly scarce money. This will fix so many problems in the world that, you know, might not seem like are being, you know, these problems might not seem like they're being caused by bad money, but inevitably the deeper down the rabbit hole you get, it becomes more apparent. And uh, I, I just, I don't see how Bitcoin loses when you have such an eager group of Bitcoiners who want to just spread the orange pill far and wide. So uh, how did you end up falling down the rabbit hole? Yeah, I think just to put a pin in that, I think health, um, health requires time, right? It requires time and energy to learn about how to take care of yourself. And more importantly, and actually more difficult is implement changes in your life to better take care of yourself, right? Like knowing's not enough. If you don't apply the information, it doesn't do shit. And it takes time. And I think if you're always having your time stolen, by using fiat that's constantly debasing, you're never gonna have time to take care of yourself. And that's actually the, the most common reason that I hear from people when they're like, oh, I just wish I could get healthy, but I'm just, I can't, I'm struggling, I can't do it. And I always ask them like, what's getting in the way? Like what's stopping you from being healthy? And they just say, I don't have time. I don't have time to work out, I don't have time to make food, I don't have time to learn about all these things, it's too confusing. And you know, about two years ago, I sort of shifted over from mainly trying to solve the health problem. Like how do we help people take care of themselves at scale using digital tools? Um, because I'm trained as a physio and I realized that when I'm treating one person at a time in clinic and I'm only treating their symptoms, I'm not even helping them understand health. It really wasn't that fulfilling. And so switching over to 
helping people understand how to take care of themselves and using scalable digital tools like Instagram to put out free information so that people can consume it and apply it was much more satisfying. And actually it allowed me to help much more people. Um, and two years ago, I realized that actually the health problem, like why do I have to convince people to take care of themselves to feel good? Like, why do we have to convince people of that? That's so silly. Everyone wants to feel good. What is the problem here? And I kind of came to the harsh truth that the health problem is a derivative of the money problem because you know, the way I look at it, there's like a four, four layer layer cake. Um, at the top you have health and let's call it planetary degradation. So we're like a bunch of squirrely shit that, that makes our environment nasty and our personal environment getting nasty through disease is sort of like this top layer, right? That's the symptom. That's what we see. That's the visible thing underneath that is education because if people understand how to take care of themselves, then they do better. And people that take care of themselves, take care of the area that they live in. Right. If you like if you're healthy and you take care of yourself and you have time, you're not always under the gun. You're going to pick up garbage if it's on your lawn. You're going to take care of your surroundings. You're going to take care of your environment. So people who take care of themselves, take care of the environment, health and environmental degradation are top of the layer cake. Underneath that's education. Underneath education is politics because the politicians determine what people learn in schools. And then on the very bottom of the layer cake is money because money is what determines which politicians get into power, which determine what we learn, which determines how well we can take care of ourselves and the environment around us. So I kind of walk that back. I'm like, wow, I'm spending a lot of time trying to solve the health problem. And it's just a straight up derivative of money. So I may as well solve the money problem because it's you can do all the work in the world to solve the health problem. But if you don't fix the money, it's useless because no one has the time to take care of themselves. Um, so I got into Bitcoin. Um, Sort of serendipitously, actually, by luck, when I was treating as a physio, one of my patients was a software programmer and he just wouldn't stop talking about Bitcoin. And so every time, you know, this dude comes in because his posture is obliterated because he sits at a computer all day and he's just like a savant genius. And I'm working on his shoulder every week for an hour. And, you know, you got to make small talk. We're talking about stuff. He's talking about Bitcoin. I'm like, what is this nerd talking about Bitcoin? (laughs) Um, But, you know, he's a good dude. And I was like, you know what? I'll look into it, whatever. So... Uh, that was back in 2015 and, uh, I'm very grateful for that, that guy. So, you know, if you ever come across the radar of this podcast, random dude that I treated back in the day, thank you. Because, uh, you know, I bought Bitcoin, a Bitcoin to start with very early for very cheap. And, you know, the old saying where your money goes, your mind goes, I think that was just enough skin in the game for me to be curious to see like, what's going to happen with this, right? Is it going to go to zero? Is it going to, what's going to happen? And from a really young age, when, since I was about 15, I started working pretty early because um, basically the way it worked in my family was if you want to have the real nice shoes, we'll pay you what a normal, we'll pay what a normal pair of shoes is. But if you want the really nice ones, you got to work and you pay the difference. And so I started working at 15 in a sports store, making commission, selling sports equipment and had all this money that I was pissing away. And my grandfather was a value investor. And he said, basically, you know, you need to stop wasting your money. If you save it now, your money will actually make you money. And so he got me into like, value investing 101 warren buffett i read the intelligent investor by benjamin Graham, um, and sort of got an idea for how the mechanics of money worked at a pretty early age you know how to value a company how to make sense of price to earnings ratios in terms of like is this company actually worth this per share ish um and the more i was aware of that the more i started to see like some of this shit's not making sense like the markets are not actually rational when people are overpaying for a company that's worth nothing and underpaying for a company that's worth a lot, it's like, what is going on here? And, you know, as it went on and I started to see, I I actually started learning the truth about what happened in 2008 later on and realized how messed up things were. 
And once you start to look, kind of look under the hood at the plumbing of the financial system, you're like, wow, this is all a joke. This is all corrupt. This is all ridiculous. And uh, so it was kind of like that primed me to understand the foundational stuff of money and valuation. And then that collided with this patient talking about Bitcoin, getting me interested. And Bitcoin was sort of the confluence of both. And I just had this belief. I've always been a collector of things too. You know, like when I was little, I collected rare coins because I just thought they were cool. My uncle would give me these coins on my birthdays. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Or old bills, old Canadian dollar bills. Um, and just cool shit like ho old, old ass hockey cards that I thought I could sell one day. So I've always been like a collector of scarce things. I enjoyed scarce things. And uh, Bitcoin was just this like the, the crux of it, right? I realized the financial system is all bullshit and like everything I thought I knew is just a scam. Uh, Bitcoin started taking up more of my attention and I started to look at it as this rare thing that I could collect, uh, that, this scarce thing. And uh, yeah, sort of from there, it's been this sort of undulating path of like going super deep dive uh, with research, with understanding like what is, what is Bitcoin? How do I understand this? How do I exchange my money for Bitcoin? How do I tell my family about this opportunity? I actually at one point was about to, I sent out an email to a bunch of people that I knew, my uncle, my friends, my, their dads, that were all like pretty savvy people. And Bitcoin was that like two grand Canadian. And I said, listen guys, you like, you need to, this is a big opportunity, this, this Bitcoin thing, when you actually start to understand it. And if you wanna to pool together some resources then I can help us all put it somewhere safe and have it in a way so that we can all kind of buy into this. And if you don't wanna do all the under the hood stuff of the nerdy stuff, because back in the day, it was pretty hard to self custody Bitcoin. Um, oh yeah. Then we can do this. And at the last minute I chickened out, cause I was like, I don't wanna hold people's money. If I die and everyone loses money, that's gonna suck. So I chickened out of that, but you know, there's been these periods where I just did deep dives of like getting obsessively deep in trying to learn as much as I could. And then um, in 2020 and 2021, uh, I started listening to a lot of Michael Saylor. And at the time I was helping with capital allocation for this natural footwear company. And we had a balance sheet with some cash on it. And obviously it's not a large amount of cash, but I was like, well, we don't need this now. This is for future projects. We should probably put this into Bitcoin um, to have it on our balance sheet and be able to preserve our purchasing power. Cause like Canada printed something like almost 20% more money in one fucking year. People don't realize that. And that's, that's absurd. Like literally everyone got robbed. And the way I looked at it, I was like in this weird crisis. Cause I'm like, every, I just realized that everyone I know just got robbed 20% of their, of their wealth, of their life energy. And no one seems to be batting an eye. No one clearly understands this. And no one's really interested in understanding it because they think I'm a whack job that, you know, just talks about Bitcoin all the time. And um, so anyway, that really nudged me to really look into Bitcoin a lot more. And the more I looked at it and heard these people like Michael Saylor talk about it in a way I'd never heard it talked about before, I realized like I want to spend all my time understanding Bitcoin and helping people understand it so that they can preserve their life energy uh, because that's what's going to, that's a big part of health. Um, and everyone I love is going to be left in the dust when fiat collapses, uh, unless I am there to make sure that they have the right resources when their time is right. So that's kind of what, uh, it's a long winded way of explaining my rabbit hole. No, man, that was such a beautiful explanation and you made so many points. And I think the one that resonated with me the most is about how, when people are invested in something, they take care of it. You know, if you're renting a house and something goes wrong, it's like, I don't give a crap. I'm not to pay for the expense. You call up your landlord and say, hey, you need to get this fixed, you know, but you don't actually treat that house how you would treat it if it was your own house and you owned it. You treat stuff better that you own. 
And I think that same idea can apply to the monetary system. You know, the U.S. I think printed 40 percent. So it was even worse than Canada. And if you're a Bitcoiner and you study these things, you understand how egregious and how much they rob from everyone else. But we don't own we, we, we're not actually like we have no say in the monetary system. We just use the money. So, you know, in, in a sense, we're kind of like a renter, someone who can't really, you know, they can't make actual decisions. They're just kind of using someone else's money. You know, the cash is a liability of the central bank. And with Bitcoin, Michael Saylor might have over 140,000 Bitcoin on his MicroStrategy balance sheet. But my node is the same as MicroStrategy's node in the sense that it enforces the rules of the network. You know, it's treated the same by the network. So you can actually own a part of this system and feel invested in it and want to tell others like, hey, no one can cheat this. No one can create more of it. No one can dilute you by 20% or 40% or whatever it is. And when it comes to food, you made so many good points. And it like reminds me of that triangle. It's like, you know, pick two out of the three when it comes to food, delicious and tasty, cheap, healthy. And you can only have two out of those three because, you know, if you want cheap food, well, then it's probably not going to be as delicious and tasty. You can get healthy and delicious and tasty, but it'll be more expensive, you know, or you can just get uh, tasty and uh, cheap, but it's sure it's probably not going to be healthy. So you kind of got to right. make those distinctions. And if we weren't having our purchasing power robbed from us by central banks printing it out of thin air, then I think that triangle would be less of a problem because healthy food would be getting cheaper and cheaper. There'd be more grass fed steak. There wouldn't be these massive corporations doing these factory farming things. Like the idea that cows are bad for the environment is asinine, but I do think that factory farming is bad for the environment. I can 100% get behind that. We need more regenerative ranching. We need more farmers actually letting cows roam and poop in the grass and you know doing stuff cows should do. It, I mean, it's bad putting them in a factory and feeding them the way they do. Uh, so, I mean, you just did such a good job laying out how it kind of gets obfuscated, but when you really think about it from first principles and start breaking it down, so many problems stem from a broken money. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, most people just don't realize that they just had 20% or 40% or whatever it is of their purchasing power diluted by one entity who controls the money printer. Yeah, there's this saying that I saw um, in like a diagram and it was really powerful. It was this, these two young fish and an old fish and the old fish says, hey, hey boys, how's the water? And they look at each other and says, what water? They don't know what water is because they're just in it, right? It's like they, they don't know anything different. And I think when you say the money's broken, people are like, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean broken? This money is just something that we use um, to pay for things and, to, make and to, to get paid for things. And so, it's so we're so immersed in this, in this misunderstanding of money, of what it is. And actually, this, we just literally have no grounded understanding of what money is, why it exists, how we use it, how it works, how the money we use actually works. Um, and so it is, it is for sure a challenge, right? And I think there's a lot of similarities between health and Bitcoin, I find, which is why the green pill and the orange pill are such a similar set of, uh, things and, and similar set of methods when you're trying to help people understand how to take care of themselves and understand money, because most people just are not taught any of that. Right. Um, and when you really, when they really have to like take responsibility for things, uh, it's a lot of work. And so they only change when it comes to health. I think there's two ways that stimulate people to change. Well, number one is curiosity. Some people change because they're curious and they learn and they want to understand and they can get a, They can learn how to take care of themselves before they basically get massive disease and pain. Um, but in my experience, that is actually the vast minority. That, those are the rarities, the unicorns. Most people change through pain. Most people learn about health when they have a health issue. They learn about 
feet when their feet stop them from going for runs and they get depressed. They learn about how to eat when they get diabetes or when they have heart disease. You know, like it's, it's like pain is the ultimate um, transformative catalyst for change. And I think people are starting to experience more pain with money now, right? When, thing, when everything around you is getting more expensive and you're not getting paid anymore, there's pain there, right? Every time the price goes up for something or the thing that you buy is the same price, but it's half the size, right? Shrinkflation, it's painful. And all these little nudges start to accumulate to the point where people, there's, there's almost this readiness that they're ready to learn about money because money is such a painful area in their life. Um, and I think there's a lot of pain to come, unfortunately, but I think that's the only path forward, right? Like the only way on to the other side is through. Uh, I think for the curious ones, I want to make sure that I'm there and available to help the curious ones learn about Bitcoin so that they can get, get in on it before they need to kind of like I got lucky with that. I want to pass that on and create that opportunity for as many people as possible. Um, and same thing with health. I just want to help people understand how to take care of themselves in hopes that they'll do that before disaster strikes. And, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of similarities. It's all based on education. It's all education. Um, when people have all of the, inf the the truthful information, they can make better decisions, right? I don't, I'm not. I don't want to convince anyone of anything anymore. Um, I did that for a long time, and people just kind of push you away. Um, and when you just live in alignment with your values and lead by example, um, and take on the personal responsibility yourself for understanding how to take care of yourself and how to wield Bitcoin, you then sort of do what is necessary in order to help others understand how to take care of themselves just by sharing your experience, not telling them what to do, not pretending like you know everything. It's like, well, these are, these are the things I did. I feel pretty good. Uh, these are the things I did to feel like this. Maybe you should try these things. And these are the things, more importantly, that I avoid. You should, maybe you should avoid those. You'll probably feel better. Um, and when you learn to wield Bitcoin, it requires a lot of deep understanding and energy to really understand how to understand it enough to the point of putting skin in the game and then how to custody your own sats so that you actually f take advantage of the full feature set of bitcoin which is this censorship resistant fuck you money that is permissionless and no one can steal from you and with great power comes great responsibility and the only way to claim freedom is uh by by the only way to be free is by claiming it right and this is like the biggest thing i saw at the freedom convoy when i was here in ottawa um, during that time was people standing up and literally coming to claim their their freedom, right? It's not given to people. You must claim it. And people that came to downtown Ottawa claimed their freedom and were free to do whatever they want. It was the most free place in Canada. You could do anything you want. You could hug people. You could dance. You could be around other people. Uh, you could share food, share meals with people. Um, no one was going to tell you not to. No one was going to tell you to put a mask on. No one was going to say you're not allowed to buy this food because you didn't get this injection. There was none of that. And so it was the freest place in Canada. And it was beautiful because people were actually like in this ecstasy of joy of just being able to reconnect with each other after two or three years of disconnection and quite frankly, full on warfare on human health. Um, so it was an insane atmosphere. Um, you know, all the Bitcoin stuff aside, it was just an incredible place to be. And uh, I think unless you were there, it's really hard. You words do not do justice to the kind of emotional experience that you get when you're in a place like that at a time like that. So there's really no way of explaining this. Um, what I do know is there was like really smart, loving, respectful people that were there every day announcing things like everyone be respectful, everyone be nice, loving, everyone um, look out because there's going to be people that don't want this to happen that might be here to do shitty things and make us look bad. Uh, if there's a confrontation, don't retaliate. Like this was constantly reinforced. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was just a really powerful thing to see that 
everyone was there for the right reasons. Everyone was intelligent about it and respectful about it. Uh, and everything was legal. Every like there was no tolerance for illegal shit or bullshit. Um, it was all peace, love, honor, respect. That's it. There were like ex police officers, ex military guys that were there reinforcing that. And even walking around, like part of my time down there was literally just walking around observing if there was a confrontation. Like, obviously, people are heated, right? People are literally coming to downtown Ottawa, some of these people, because their son, their daughter, their wife, their relative um, was severely affected mentally or physically by something they were coerced to do. There's a lot of righteous anger, right? And when you see some NPC come downtown and basically say, why are you here? You know, like why just take the shot or like say these things and you and they have no idea the pain that someone has experienced that has brought them from all across Canada to go to that place. There can be anger and that's and that's to be emotional is to be human, but it still didn't change the fact that everyone had to maintain their composure and act in alignment with the value of what we we're trying to accomplish, which was peacefully claim our freedom by coming together and being so loud that politicians couldn't ignore us anymore. Right. It was the only way that people in Canada actually had a vote was to vote with their feet to go downtown and be like, we're going to wait here until you politicians come out of those buildings and speak to us because you don't listen to us otherwise. And their power was so fragile that literally this is not hyperbolic. This is literally true. They declared a national emergency because peaceful people were asserting their right to be free. A national emergency was declared because of a peaceful protest. Just think about how powerful that is, how fragile their power is, and how scared they were that their control was going to be threatened by free people peacefully assembling and saying, enough is enough. We're not going to take this anymore. They declared a na <laughs> like literally a national emergency. And the other part of this was the intention with people going down to Ottawa was, you know, I talked to a lot of the people who were like really hardcore and down there and coordinating and helping. The intention was not to overpower the government, right? Not on the menu. They have all the guns. They have unlimited power and money. Not on the menu to overtake them. The goal was be so resilient and persevere so much to just be there peacefully, even in minus 30 degree weather, freezing our asses off in the Canadian winter, struggling to even start a barbecue to cook food and having hundreds and thousands of people down there. Um, persevere and, and have the resilience to just be there and claim our freedom and not budge an inch until these people who claim to serve us actually listen. Um, you know, they were so scared. They used massive amounts of violence on peaceful people. And the goal was not to overthrow them. It was to show how badly they would cheat and how violent they would get when their power was infringed on, when their control was infringed on, and just show them doing terribly absurd, disgusting things on TV. And here's the thing. It wasn't really on TV, right? The media that was there was all bought by the government. And so the people that were down there, one of the messages that people were saying every morning was, we are the media. Everyone here has a phone, has a camera on their phone. They can record videos. They can put videos out on social media. Sure, most of those videos got suppressed or banned. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be platforms that sneak through. There's always going to be censorship resistant platforms, like whether it's Rumble or Nostra or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, there's a ton of footage out there that's going to sneak out in documentaries at some point. And the truth is unstoppable. And so the truth of what actually happened in Canada at the Freedom Convoy 
will get out in due time. It cannot be suppressed. It's like trying to hold mercury, right? It slips through in one spot and then it's gone because the internet is just this giant web where as soon as one leak happens and truth gets through, it can really explode. So I think there's going to be justice. Um, and justice to me is people getting what they deserve. So the people who sacrificed will get what they deserve. And the people who did bad things will also get what they deserve. It might take five years, but um, I'm a firm believer that that's going to happen. And it was really just an honor. And uh, I'm, I just consider myself really lucky that I was in that place at that time in history in my life and able to participate to um, the level that I that I was able to. I was basically there for two shifts. I was there all day as much as my body would let me and as long as I didn't freeze um, for about three weeks because I was just, it was like after two years of brutality, it was like this little flicker of hope that it's like, I, I actually have agency now and I can actually help in some way, even if it just means like literally going to get a hot chocolate or a warm pair of socks for this trucker who came all the way across Canada and sleeping in the cab of their truck with blankets because it's minus 30, not getting paid, not seeing their family, not making money, spending a lot of money, being threatened with massive amounts of fines. Um, if I can help them by bringing them a coffee in the morning, then I'm definitely going to do that. And, um, you know, the whole idea of not overpowering them, but just showing how badly they, they were going to cheat and that converging with this pain. It's like, another non-hyperbolic thing, if you supported these peaceful truckers in the peaceful protest, you literally had your bank account closed. That's a crazy thing because in Canada during the winter, that can mean death. If it's minus 30 and you can't pay your heating bill and your heating gets shut off or you can't go and buy groceries because all of your money is in banks and plastic is how you pay for things, that is the most sinister form of of violence even though it might not seem like like no one's punching you but like they're stealing away your ability to pay for your heat your food and shelter that's crazy just because you supported a peaceful protest so i think that was success if for nothing else if all we did was show that our governments are willing to call a national emergency because of a peaceful protest and people asserting their right to be free and be and to turn off the bank accounts of anyone who supported those law-abiding peaceful people. I mean, I don't know what kind of marketing Satoshi Nakamoto does for Bitcoin, but like Justin Trudeau's done a way better marketing job <laughs> to orange people <laughs> than Satoshi maybe ever will. Um, so, you know, it all ends up being good, but in the short term, it was pretty shocking to watch. So I'll leave it there. No, man, I just got to say what you guys did was so special and I can't thank you enough. I can't thank every single trucker who went to Ottawa because watching that last year from my phone, from Twitter, from the internet, I mean, it was like a spark of hope. It, it was truly something like that changed the world that forever changed the trajectory and who knows how draconian it would have been, but it, you're right. It just exposed these frauds, these absolute phonies mm -hmm. who sit up there, who virtue signal, who try and tell the masses how to live their lives and then do the exact opposite. Will literally lie through their teeth with a smile and try and say, this is good for you. This is what you need to do. This is why you have to accept high inflation. Inflation will be transformed, whatever it is. These cronies, these kleptocrats just lie straight through your teeth and the truckers just expose them. And I was yeah. lucky enough this past Saturday, Mass Adoption had a festival and some truckers came. And the same goosebumps I just felt listening to you talk about the, the protest. I, I felt from every single one of the truckers that gave a talk. And just to like let people know 
how amazing these people are. Bridget, one of the grandmas who helped put this uh, festival together, she, you know, she saw my baby and she wanted to hold her. And, you know, I, I got a six month old and I wouldn't just give this to anyone, but I mean, you just, you could just feel, and I handed her my six month old, you know, didn't even know this woman and six month old was as happy as could be so kind. I mean, just like the kind of people who are willing to stand up for everyone else, for all the NPCs who aren't ready to see how hypocritical, how insane these government policies were. I mean, what you guys did was just so special. And like you said, the truth will always find a way. The truth is like a lion. It doesn't need to be defended. But a lot of times the way the truth does end up coming out is because of pain. And, and I thought the, the metaphor, the analogy you gave about how health and a lot of times what causes people to, to change their ways with their health is pain. Um, it's similar with money. A lot what causes people to go, well, what is money? Like, wh why should I actually care about this? It's pain. And uh, I'm curious from your perspective on ways, you know, I think we both for our families, for the people we care about, we want to try and help them avoid that pain. And to, to some degree, you, you just leading by example is the best thing you can do to just try and show them, hey, you know, this is why I think this way. I'm happy to answer any questions, but also I'm not going to force you to use it. I mean, fiat currency is literally by decree. You are forced to use fiat. There are legal tender laws. There are men and guns who will come and take your home if you don't pay your taxes with fiat. You know, like it is literally by decree. And Bitcoin is the opposite. It's completely ground up. It's anyone who bottom up, anyone who wants to use this technology, go ahead. You know, it's there. You don't have to use it, but if you want to use it. Um, so I'm curious for, for the people who aren't, for the people who are curious, who aren't going to need a massive amount of pain to be pushed to something like Bitcoin, how have you uh, found success with trying to help onboard people and educate them and, and show them that there's a much more bright orange future than, uh, you know, versus the legacy system we, we currently have in place? Yeah, there's really not. <clears throat> I don't know if I can even think of more than one hand worth of fingers of people that have actually had the curiosity to look into something this intimidating um, as like full reevaluation of money. But I think one thing that deserves to be said is that there, you know, pain is a continuum, right? Like you can have small little whispers, like small little nudges of pain, little pricks that kind of like sting, but it's like, ah, you know, it's kind of, it's an itch. It's not necessarily like, oh, that hurts a lot. It's not like burning your finger. It's like, oh, that was sharp. What's that? And those little pain points, uh, I think I've gotten really good at detecting people complaining or making observations about pain points in their lives that are, that can actually be quite mild. And my game that I love to play is how do I relate like, oh, yeah, you're complaining about the price of pickles. Well, you don't you you might think that the pickle dude is just getting rich <laughs> off charging you more pickles. <laughs> um, or you might not relate that directly to money becoming worth less. Right. Or like people that are like, dude, houses are so expensive. How am I ever going to buy a house? Like all of these little things that come up in conversation, I've learned to sort of ask them questions and be like, why do you think they're more expensive? Like, I really want to understand, like, why do you think pickles are more expensive? Well, it's because, you know, like pickles didn't get harder to grow than the last year, <laughs> you know, why are they more expensive? Why are you getting less for your money? So I I've gotten good at um, asking people further questions when they bring up pain points and trying to usher them to the realization that money broken equals this pain point is that is what's causing like money being corrupted and manipulated is what's causing this superficial symptom that I'm complaining about and helping people by asking questions work backwards and see that 
money being broken is why you're paying more for your pickles. Money being broken is why houses cost so many units of currency because the currency is becoming worthless. And so you have to pay way more units for the same fixed thing. It doesn't mean you're, you're not getting rich off your house. You're getting robbed by your money being diluted. And they're very different things, right? The, the much more palatable and enjoyable thing to believe is that I'm getting rich because my house is going up in value. That's way nicer to believe, right? That's way, it's way easier to sleep at night when you think you're getting rich, getting rich by doing shit all and your house is just mysteriously 20% more. It's way less palatable and comfortable to realize everything I own just got devalued by 20%, including my home. Um, and the, the currency is collapsing, which makes prices inflate at, at, at a, an exponential rate. So I'm not getting richer. Everything is being stolen from, so I have to spend more units to buy the same thing that last year was way less units because the units were worth more. So I think it's really, I try and find people when they bring up these little mild pain points that they don't associate with money and ask them questions to help them work backwards. And you see some of the light bulbs go off. It's like, oh yeah, that's how, yeah, when they make a bunch of money, how are they making that money? Oh yeah, if there's more money in the system, I gotta, everyone, there's gonna be more money chasing the same amount of goods. So everything's gonna have to go up in price. So why do they print more money? Like people start asking these questions and it's, you can kind of see these, these little seeds being planted where they're like, oh fuck, I need to reevaluate this. Like, I don't understand this clearly. I didn't know the government just made money and that made all my shit worth less and stole a bunch of money from me indirectly. Um, so yeah, my goal is just like every time I detect this pain point, just like when people say, oh geez, my feet hurt a lot. It's like, what kind of shoes are you wearing? Did you know those shoes aren't shaped like feet and they actually don't let your feet work like they're supposed to? Check out these shoes. Like these let my feet work great. My feet feel awesome. I don't have foot pain ever. And the same thing. It's like when someone's like, well, all of my groceries got 30% more expensive in six months. I don't know what to do. It's like, yeah, that's messed up. And the reason it happens is because you're using this money controlled by people who are constantly stealing from you. I use this money. No one can steal that money. And when I need some of it to buy things at the grocery store, I convert a little bit to the shitty currency to use it, but I don't save in that currency and I don't save in a house because a house isn't good money. Um, and so it's really just speaking from experience and trying to find the little pain points that people mention and bridging the gap in understanding and connecting it to the true root cause, which is manipulated money. That's like, that's my process of orange pilling is trying to find ways to make money relevant to the pain points and problems that people experience every day and voice about, but don't work back to actually associating with manipulated money. That's a beautiful answer. And I mean, if I think if I had asked an elite salesperson, how do you sell a product? They would have given a very similar answer to what you did. It's meeting people where they are. It's not just immediately trying to sell the features or the perks or, oh yeah, you can stream this Bitcoin over Lightning Network and it's so cool because then, you know, when someone's creating content, you can send them value. Like just someone who is just, doesn't know anything about Bitcoin, they're going to be like, what, what kind of feature is this guy? Like, it's crazy. Like actually taking the time. Oh, well, why do you think that's expensive? Like really digging into the first principles and trying to show that person the flaws inherent with fiat currency. And then just being like, hey, but you know, there is a system that doesn't allow anyone to print more of it. And after you've basically opened their eyes to the flaws and in, in, in the pain that they're experiencing, then coming in and saying, you know, there is this thing if you're interested in using it and it's been very helpful. And I think with fiat currency, you know, if you're looking at a Canadian dollar or a US dollar, or when you just measure that thing, it's like, oh, well, this dollar of cash is worth a dollar cash. And because my unit of account is the dollar, I just assume that this dollar is worth this dollar. 
But if you switch your unit of account to Bitcoin or housing, obviously housing isn't a unit of account. But, you know, if you switch your unit of account to something else, you realize, oh, my God, I am not getting wealthier. My fiat currency is just losing purchasing power at an exponential rate. And it's going to continue to lose purchasing power even faster because they're going to print even more money to pay the interest on the initial debt. And they'll always be able to pay their debts. It's just a question of when do people lose trust in the currency because they printed so much of it. And, you know, it makes me think a lot about Noster and I'm so bullish on what this protocol can do and in, in the ability to just zap content creators and to kind of get away from this advertising model. And I don't think taking revenue from it, from an ad or from a third party is bad by any means. So, I mean, if you're showing like Manscaped or Athletic Greens or like whatever, like, you know, there, there are some products that like are fine. I, I'm not saying that's bad, but I think when content creators are strapped for cash and they're very eager to get paid for doing something, well, then you see people start shilling FTX or Celsius or these products that are just are absolute dog crap. And a lot of, you know, really, I, I mean, even people who I like listening to, I think there were some people who had eggs on their face because they were shilling these shitty products that was just the best way for a content creator to make money. And, you know, your answer, how to help people see Bitcoin, I, I wonder how to do that with Noster. And uh, after hearing you talk, it makes me think like if someone hates passwords being like, well, hey, like imagine you could take your Gmail login and you could go to Twitter or you could go to Facebook or Instagram or any other platform. And all you needed was that Gmail login and you could go anywhere. Well, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? They'd be like, yeah, I hate passwords. Like that, that would be cool. Well, there's this Noster thing. And that's the idea. You can have a private key and you can port that private key to any other app client on the that uses the Noster protocol and have access to your data. And, you know, if you're talking to a computer science nerd, it's like, hey, well, we could have this system of smart clients and dumb servers. So rather than our traditional web model, where basically the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the Twitters have the smart server, they have the server that has all of your data, everything you've created and put on those platforms, they hold the keys to that server that controls that data. And you have a dumb client that is allowed to log on and access that data. Well, flip that on its head with Noster. Now you control all that data. You can go to any client, you can go anywhere, you can take that. And then for someone who's just already down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, it's like, well, hey, you can zap post in, you know, I, I like to post memes on Noster. You know, I love to shit post on Noster and people can literally pay me for shit posting. People can pay me the hardest money known to man for literally making them laugh with a shit post. Um, so I, I appreciate, I mean, that, that, that's such great insight and it. it's something I, I need to think about when I'm talking with Noster. I, I almost get like, <laughs> if anyone even asks me, I get too excited to be like, well, hey, you know, why did you ask me about that? What, what are you curious about? Is there, is there a pain point you're experiencing in, in the current uh, web model? Um, for whatever, I mean, Bitcoin and Noster are the examples we gave, but like that applies to anything in life. And I think it's just so much more effective to try and convince someone by showing them the flaws and then, you know, pointing out there is a better system. There is a better way to do this. Yeah, I think orange pilling is the act of working to understand people and the problems um, more than anything. So you have to understand who someone is, what kind of problems they have in their life. What is their level of understanding of what the root cause of that problem is? Because in the world of health, most of the time you have symptoms where the symptoms are is not where the problem is, right? The symptoms are a derivative often offsite of where the actual cause is, right? Like if your hips aren't working like they're supposed to, your knees and your low back are going to hurt. And if you try and treat your low back or try and change things with your low back, you're never going to solve the problem because the back isn't the problem. The hips, the problem, 
because we sit all day. And so I think that same, that's kind of like a metaphor for a lot of things in the world of money, right? Like the grocery store charging more for groceries isn't the problem, right? The, I can't get my car serviced right now because there's such a long wait. That's not the problem. The problem is when you manipulate the base language of value transfer, everything gets fucked up and our ability to coordinate as much uh, is like kneecapped, right? And so everything becomes harder to find. Everything becomes more expensive to get because we can't coordinate and have things be seamlessly done because, you know, like I heard Breedlove talk about this and I think it's a good metaphor. It's like money is the language we use to convey value and it's equally as important. It's just as important as verbal language that we use to communicate information. And if you were manipulating the language of English every day or every month, people would have a hard time talking to each other because someone would be using words the other person doesn't know and they'd be putting words together in ways that shouldn't be like that. And so you manipulate the language, people have issues communicating. You manipulate money, people have issues communicating value. They have trouble uh, aligning like um, labor needed to do a certain job to fulfill a certain service. Um, and it just, it, when you manipulate money, it makes everything harder to get and harder to do. And so prices go up from the fact that the money's worth less, but also from the fact that our ability to coordinate is essentially being handicapped. And no one really looks at it from that perspective. And it really is this kind of thing where it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you understand the deep implications of money manipulation, you start seeing it show up everywhere in everything people complain about. Almost every pain point I hear people talk about is based on manipulated money. And the problem they're talking about is the second, third, fourth order effect derivative of manipulated money. And so I just try and work them through my logic of, well, this is the problem you got, but that's not the actual cause of the problem. If you go down four layers, manipulation of money is what's resulting in that problem. So instead of trying to solve the symptom, why don't you look at the money and opt into a system that stops stealing from you so you have time to understand all these things uh, and so that you can preserve your value so that you're not getting robbed. And it really is like government saying we targeted 2% rate of inflation is really governments are saying we targeted 2% rate of theft. And some years we go up to 20 because <laughs> fuck you. Yeah. And it's like, what? Yeah. Who, who thought this was a good idea? Who thought this was fair? <laughs> Clearly no one knows this is going on because if they did, everyone would be pissed, right? That old, I think it was Henry Ford. It's like, if people understood the money system, we'd have a revolution tomorrow morning. Uh, and it's so true. And I think it's the re the part of the reason it's so hard to get people to understand money is because their understanding of it is so far off of reality. The cognitive dissonance is a giant barrier to them even wanting to learn about it because they have to implicitly admit that everything they've ever known about money is bullshit. And that's a tough pill to swallow, literally. So, you know, I try and give people little micro doses of the orange pill because when they try and swallow the big one all at once, they're like, uh-uh, I'm not going there. That's way too uncomfortable <laughs> to learn about. <laughs> so no, you're little, right. It's almost a black pill. Snippets. It, yeah. It, it's almost a black pill when you take too much because you're like, oh my, it's like you're, you're waking up from the matrix. You're like, so yep. much shit is wrong because of the money. <laughs> and uh, to answer your question about who the hell decided this 2% arbitrary inflation target? Well, it was a pedophile, John Maynard Keynes, who Keynesian <laughs> economics, who the whole thing is taught on. He liked little kids. He was a legit pedophile. And our whole system is based on that. And to your point about like how, how money is a value transfer and how it gets distorted, especially when one entity can monopolize credit. Just to give an example, uh, right before World War One, England was fighting a war. And back in the day, Countries would literally fight until their treasury ran out and then they had, they had to surrender. They say, we don't have any more money to keep fighting, right? So England issued bonds to, to the public to try and keep funding the war. 
and only one third of the bonds were subscribed to. So, you know, two thirds of the bond, like, it just no they didn't have them. any they bidders didn't want, for They didn't want war. They didn't want a fun fucking war. Duh. Exactly. So the people were saying, no, we don't want to fund this war. We're done fighting. So what did John Maynard Keynes and the Bank of England do? And this actually came out in 2017, apparently. They literally created, like we do today, money out of thin air. I'm sorry, credit out of thin air. Gave that credit to their two top officials who then bought the remaining two-thirds of the war. And obviously, <laughs> you know, then we had World War One and World War Two. And I think the same thing had happened in health. I mean, you look at the FDA food chart and it's just asinine. And you, you walk down a grocery store and you see heart healthy on bottles of vegetable oil and canola oil. And you're like, who in their right mind thinks this is heart healthy? What kind of scientist doctor is sitting there saying, oh, yeah, you know what? This stuff that can power a car's engine, that's good for your health, human being. You should definitely eat that. And then you see the massive subsidies they give farmers to basically do factory farming and to create these oils and stuff. And they're just looking for the cheaper alternatives. And then at the same time, they pay off scientists to say, yeah, butter, saturated fat is horrible for you. You don't want to eat butter or ghee or all those all those natural animal fats that humans and our ancestors have lived off of for so long. No, 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 don't eat that. Eat this engine lubricant that's heart healthy for you. So it's just uh, so many things get distorted that never otherwise would have been able to. And, and obviously it's hard to compete against someone who can print credit out of thin air and then you know, c- continuously do that. But I, I think you're right that we as people, you know, when we make a purchase, we are telling the market something. And even though a lot of those signals are distorted because, you know, credit's been monopolized. If you buy, you know, your meat from a rancher who's doing things the right, right way, well, that's a signal to the market. Hey, you know, there are people out there who are looking for grass-fed quality cow. They want to eat more meat. So I think in every decision we make, being conscious of that and then in the same way that you know your money grows exponentially with compounding interest well your health that can be the same thing if you make an effort to say i'm going to walk ten thousand steps every single day and i will not miss a day i don't give a shit how tired i am i don't give a shit how hard my job is i'm going to walk those ten thousand steps or go to the gym or, or whatever it is someone wants to do well you'll find after a year you you almost don't even recognize your old self and it's the same thing those good habits just build on top of each other and it's, uh, it's just, you know, I never thought about all the similarities between uh, health and money, but I mean, th- there are so many of them. There are. And I mean, you could consider your health. So my truth fundamentally with health is that health is proof of the work you've done to take care of yourself. So it's not, you know, like people say, oh, I'm out of shape. It's like, no, 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 you're in the exact shape you should be in based on how you use your body. That's what your body, like our bodies literally just do exactly what we tell them. So if you're a bag, if you're like in dog shit health, you've been treating your body like dog shit. It's not rocket science. It's really straightforward. And I think health is proof of work. And you can even think, you know, like being deep into Bitcoin, you start to see the world, everything through the lens of Bitcoin, right? And you see all these metaphors and similarities and just like the blockchain it's like TikTok next block approximately every 10 minutes there's a new block that's essentially sealed into eternal truth um every day could be like a block in your health blockchain and the idea is it doesn't actually matter how many transactions you cram in there how many things you do just do something and then be able to actually say yeah i put another block on my blockchain tomorrow i'm going to do another block and it doesn't actually matter what i do as long as i did something to be one percent healthier right the walk i didn't go on Usually I'm going to go on a 10 minute walk. Perfect. I checked in, I put that block in TikTok next block tomorrow. I'm going to do something else. And it doesn't have to be these giant changes. All it has to be is 1% better every day. 
and the compounding effects of that are just astronomical um, when you just do 1% better every day. Like people love to try these giga diets or these massive lifestyle changes and they just don't work because change is hard as it is. It's like do small changes that you're actually willing and able and, and capable of doing and consistently do those. And when you run out of things and ideas of things to change, start learning more, invest. Maybe the thing you do that day is actually nothing in, in actual reality. There's no exercise, no different in anything except for learning about what you can do to take better care of yourself, which could just be having a conversation with a healthy person and saying, hey, well, well like, do you feel good in the morning when you wake up? Do you sleep well? What do you do? Like, do you have a routine? Do you have a ritual? Um, do you have any hacks? Like, what are your cheat codes? And, you know, I just try and be mindful enough to really understand how to articulate my cheat codes so that I can tell them the people when they're curious enough to ask. And so, yeah, it's like health is proof of work. Just get a block in every day. Um, there's no good or bad block. Just get a block in. Do something to take care of yourself. And before you know it, you know, string together a couple of years of blocks and like you're significantly better off than you are right now. If you've just made an effort every day to a small extent for two years in a row, like you will literally transform into a 360 of your health in so many ways and you'll feel so much better. And I think Bitcoiners are these people that it, it, the people who are protecting their money, their, their time and energy with sound money have this burst of extra time and energy available to do things like take care of themselves, to do things like learn about how the world works on a deeper level than the average person just trying to tread water and not drown. So I think Bitcoiners are the leaders, are the capital allocators of the future. They are the leaders of the future. And they are the only ones that really have the bandwidth to take care of themselves right now because they're protecting their time from theft. So I think, you know, stack health, stack sats, stack knowledge, um, and be patient. I think it's just like, Bitcoin has radically cut down my time preference in ways that I never would have thought possible, where I think way more long-term than I ever have before. I've always kind of thought long-term. I've only ever worked on big projects in terms of work that are like five to 10 year projects. Like I don't care to do short-term things for um, short-term gains. It's really like, I want something meaningful and long-term, but just in general, it's like, it doesn't matter any bad thing that happens in my day, any quote unquote bad thing. That's a challenge or a struggle or is painful. It's like, my time is saved in the world's best money, the most scarce money. And I'm going to be all right. I'm healthy. I have the freedom to go for a walk, spend time with my family, go for a walk with my dog. And my time is protected and can't be stolen by anyone ever. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm not stressing about shit. I don't care what's going on in Russia. I just care about, am I enjoying and savoring each day? And I think Bitcoin can do this thing where it frees up your time to actually do things you love. So I found people in the area I live in uh, that play pickleball. I've started to play a lot of pickleball because it's just cool people that are playing pickleball. Um, and the reason I have the time and ability to do that is because I'm not having my time stolen. It's not because I'm making tons more money than the average person. In fact, I make significantly less money than the average person. But because I have portions of that money set aside in the world's most scarce resource, scarce asset, uh, I don't really have to try and earn more just for the sake of earning more. And I think that reduction in stress from being on the flywheel of chaos uh, by just opting into sound money and opting into not having your time stolen and putting that time towards taking care of yourself um, does this just like has this magical effect on your quality of life that I, again, you can't really tell people that's the truth. Like, don't trust me, verify. <laughs> but it's, um, I found it to be quite remarkable.
Yeah, you're right, man. Those are incredible insights. And yeah, I, I go to a lot of Bitcoin meetups and I can't confirm that most Bitcoiners I meet are hopeful, they're excited, they're passionate about the world. And also the tidbit about finding others to help you. You know, I, as a fellow Bitcoiner, I also see so many metaphors and I have a group chat called Proof of Work. And I, you know, I committed in that group chat to my three buddies. I said, hey, I'm gonna run 40 miles every single month this year. I don't give a shit how I do it. I don't care if I gotta do 40 runs a month, if I gotta do four 10 mile runs, whatever. I'm gonna get to 40 miles every month. And I can confidently say the only reason I've been successful so far this year is because I don't wanna feel like a bitch in front of those guys who I told I'm gonna hit this goal. And having a support group, and I mean, maybe Bitcoin's not your thing, so you don't name your running support group proof of work and say, look, boys, I just added a block to my run chain. Whatever you got to do, like, do it that way. But having a support group to help you and just, you know, rather than trying to come up with some diet or some fad that you're just going to blow off when you fail, you know, just make small incremental changes, set a goal and hold yourself accountable to that goal. Tell other people you're going to do that goal. You know, one of the things I want to try next, and I'm not sure if you've ever fasted, um, but I would love your advice on this because I know you're clearly someone who's very wise when it comes to health. Um, but I don't know if you saw Russell O'Kung, but he's been doing a fast. I've been reading his blog. He's been doing it for 40 days. And some of the insights he's had and the clarity. And uh, I think in you know democracies and Western nations, we can get complacent because in a lot of ways, Despite all the issues we've seen these past couple of years, we have it very good. And when things don't work, when things break down, we, you know, we are not very patient, I guess, to put it kindly. And uh, I, I, it just seems like, like nowadays, most people, when you tell them like, oh, someone's going for a fast or something, like, well, what's wrong? Like, why, why, why would you do something like that? Like, you know, why, why would you not eat? But if you read like some of these, you know, uh, religious texts or even, I mean, nowadays, it's great to see someone like Russell O'Kung with his platform do something like this and bring back the wisdom. Like, in almost every religion, there's been people fasting and there's been a lot of uh, benefits that seem to come from that. And it seems to get written off. And, you know, I, I want to try, I mean, I don't know about 40 days, but I kind of want to try a week for myself and let my body have that de detox and see, see how I feel after that. And it seems like in our culture today, a lot of that gets written off as dangerous or something you shouldn't do when a lot of past cultures clearly had a reason for, for fasting. Yeah, I've, uh, I would recommend fasting, uh, even just starting with the 24 hour one, like even, um, I've done a five day water fast and it was pretty challenging. Um, you really actually start to realize what true hunger is. Like you have the habitual desire to eat right at the typical time you eat, and then you have actual hunger and they're actually very different things. One of them is a mental, um, thing, a mental urge craving. The other one is actually a physical sense of being hungry, like truly hungry. And, um, I think being able to differentiate between those two really brings a new sense of awareness to when we constantly go to eat, it's like, am I hungry or am I just, did I just smell something tasty or is this a usual time I would snack, you know? Um, so even a 24 hour, a 24 hour water fast is actually a beautiful first step. Um, and I would recommend trying that and then a 48 and then maybe a five day, a five day is pretty intense for a lot of people. I think just a 24 hour fast. So you, um, eat dinner, like eat an early dinner at 5 PM. Don't eat anything until 5 PM the next day. And it actually is shocking how much energy <laughs> you actually have. Digestion is an energy intensive thing. And so, um, I actually started not eating bread. I, I actually started when I was in practice, I started in a clinic really early on one of my rotations and I would always have to wake up extra early to make food. And I was always, always be a bit sluggish for the first hour or two after I ate food. And so one day I was just like, what if I didn't eat? 
I got an extra 30 minutes of sleep. I didn't have to prepare food. I had this surplus of energy. I was just like cruising. I'm like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. This is not what I've been told. No one ever told me that, that I would have more energy after not eating. And um, so, yeah, it's a very power. I mean, fasting is like nature's OG medicine. And I think it's, um, there's this insight that I've had with health where health is by subtraction. This is like this macro zoomed out insight that I've always had. It's like, and when you subtract all the quote unquote technology from your shoes, your feet get healthier. When you subtract chairs and couches and you spend more time on the ground or moving, your body gets healthier. When you subtract all the things that keep you up at night so that you're not sleeping um, and you subtract the artificial light, you sleep way better, just naturally. When you subtract the caffeine after you know, 12 noon, you sleep better. And so when you subtract, when I feel a six, um, when I'm feeling sick, I just don't eat for like two, three days and I get better way faster and I hardly actually get sick. Um, so obviously, no general tropes can be applied to everyone in the same way. So obviously do your own research. Don't trust verify, but don't negate the effectiveness. Everyone's scared of not eating. You know, everyone loves to come up with excuses about why, why their body's going to go to ash if they don't eat like a meal. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. P.S. Uh, the body, your body's going to be fine. <laughs> in fact, it can probably do with a little bit less food. Um, and so, yeah, I think health by subtraction is this really powerful thing where you actually don't have to do more. You don't have to do extra stuff. You just have to remember all the shit that we kind of forgot that actually comes naturally, uh, to humans in our default settings. And we just get all this bullshit layered on that they're like viruses, right? Debug the system by just, and fasting can be applied to many things, right? Like you, you can fast from social media for 24, 48 hours. It might have the same mental benefit as, as food fasting will have on your physical health. So. I think health by subtraction is a really good, is a really powerful heuristic when it comes to health. Just remembering that. No, man, that's dope. I'm, I'm going to name this episode, the power of subtraction. And I mean, that, that applies to everything. What if we subtracted the ability for central banks to print money? What if we just weren't able to do that? I mean, yep. some really good things would happen. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it seems so simple on the face of it. Um, <laughs> it's like <laughs> just subtracting, it's the last thing people think to do, but it, it's so powerful. Yep. And I've done, uh, I've done like two or three 24 hour or basically went a whole day without food. And the most recent one, um, I found it was like, I wasn't actually like, I didn't have like a deep, like a true hunger. I was just like, damn, like how much of my time is just filled with like eating because I enjoy the process of eating. Like in the morning I'd smoke coffee, like, Ooh, I really want a glass of coffee. Just, and it was like, uh, it wasn't actual hunger and actual thirst. It was just like, I'm just in such a habit of doing this that, that I want to do it. And my brain is just like, you know, it's just like automatic, like, and, and not having it feels weird and kind of irks you because it's like, well, I, I just want it. Um, but yeah, I should probably maybe then do a 48 and then work my way up to a week. Cause uh, I'm sure it, it's not easy, but yeah, I, I think there's a ton of power in that. And uh, <laughs> it just less is more. It seems so simple, but at the same time, we don't think of it because as great as the web is, I, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. It's like, you're just constantly attracted to it. And there's a million different things you can do and a million different things you want to try and get done. And then when you have so many things, it just feels like your mind's cluttered. And it's like, Oh, I have too many things. I'll never be able to get it done. So subtract, you know, it's like Michael Saylor says, hone your energy on one thing. Cause we only have so much bandwidth. We only have so much capacity to do something. And by subtracting away the things in every area of your life, you can really find what's uh what's meaningful and important in it. I agree. I agree. If you uh, 
trim the, you know, you remove the noise, you remove the distraction, you give yourself the ability to think clearly and focus and good things always happen in my life, in my experience, at least when I uh, give myself the space to be able to actually think clearly. Um, so, yeah. hundred percent. Well, Caribou, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I appreciate you uh, taking some of your time to come on this podcast. I'd love to have you back in the future. Um, and, and where, where can to. people find you online if they, if they, if they want to learn more about you? Uh, Twitter, I'm nobody caribou. And, uh, one of the projects I've worked on, uh, in the past, but it's low time preference. So I kind of take breaks here and there as I have, uh, less bandwidth available is Bitcoin Stoa, uh, com. It's just basically a collection of talks that I've had. Um, and it's a community funded, just uh, education platform. So yeah, nobody caribou, Bitcoin Stoa.com. Uh, thanks Connor for inviting me on for doing this podcast. Podcasting is like a thankless job oftentimes, but, um, you know, for the, I've done over 150 episodes of a a podcast for one of the health networks that I work with. And, uh, you know, all it takes is like one message once in a while of someone saying, I listened to your podcast and it literally changed, it upgraded my life in a way that I never would have expected. And it's like, oh yeah, this is worth it. Um, and so I think just the idea of you taking the energy and the time to actually do these, talk to guests, edit them, post them. Um, it is energy intensive. And I think this is the generosity of Bitcoiners where we actually have the time to have these conversations, to put the stuff out there so that other people can benefit from the conversations we have and maybe lead to some insights and get some little orange, orange pill microdoses uh, to hopefully accumulate to the point where they're interested in protecting their time and energy and they're confident enough to do it because um, Bitcoiners are available to help them, um, sort of move forward in their process. And, uh, yeah, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. I'd love to come on again and, uh, much love to everyone listening. Hey, my pleasure. I appreciate those kind words. And, uh, I mean, I feel like the luckiest man in the world. I, I get to reach out to people, reach out to strangers sometimes and have them on the show and have conversations. And you're right. When you just, when one person says, Oh man, I listened to your podcast and I, you know, I learned something from it. It just makes you feel all the better. And I mean, we have, we have time. Many people watch Netflix. Many people watch shows. In, a, in, my, in my personal life, I found I have learned so much, and uh, my curiosity has just exploded because of all the great podcasts out there. Because of all the people who take the time to really try and educate themselves. And yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge out there. You just have to put in put in the proof of work, subtract the negative things, and uh, find the positive things. So yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and uh, have all the all the links you just mentioned in the show notes.